Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time, Mr. Van Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I have on the line Ivan Elland uh, from the uh, Independent Institute. And uh, I thought that your article was uh, excellent, that you had recently published um, about the quagmire, the imperial quagmire. Uh, I, I would say that I'm fairly cynical about governments, but even I was a little bit surprised at the speed and enthusiasm at which the U.S. appears to be throwing itself down a third bottomless hole in the Middle East. I wonder if you could share some of your thoughts about that. Uh, well, I think, you know, this is, I think Barack Obama was uh, sort of dragged into this because uh, certainly his uh, military and defense secretaries weren't even enthusiastic about doing a, a no-fly zone in the first place. And, of course, now we're at a no-fly zone plus, and uh, the president sort of jumped into this late, um, and, of course, that, that was necessary to get everybody on board, I guess. But really, he was dragged, I think, by the Europeans. So uh, the problem is, uh, you know, the U.S. already has two quagmires going, so why not start another one? You know, it's like there's a special two wars, uh, buy two wars, uh, you know, get another for half price. So, unfortunately, we can't afford the, even the half price uh, in the United States because we have a huge yearly budget deficit and a $14 trillion national debt. And I think uh, we're sort of ex overextended as a superpower and much of the foreign policy elite, both Republican, neoconservative, and the Wilsonian left, uh, like John Kerry, et cetera, uh, have been dragging the president uh, into it. And uh, he really needed to stand up for them because he's going to get himself into a quagmire in Libya also, I think. Well, it seems that the no-fly zone is being touted as some low-risk, low-effort, low-expenditure situation. But if memory serves me correct, there was about 12 years of no-fly zones over northern and southern Iraq before the invasion of 2003. So it's hard to argue, I think, that it's a low-resource in investment. Right. I mean, John Kerry, that's, he was trying to uh, portray it as that not even a military operation and all the military people were shaking their heads that it certainly seemed like a military operation because the first thing you have to do is attack the enemy air defenses, runways, radars, uh, command and control sites, etc. So it is a war and we call it a no-fly zone and I think the public, we do, the politicians do that uh, and the bureaucrats do that to they try every word but war, because that's what it is. It's a limited war. But the problem is it may not remain limited. Uh, there's, in addition to the costs that you mentioned, and they're, they're substantial, uh, the, you know, the cruise missiles alone cost a million dollars each that they're, that they're uh, using. Uh, but uh, the bigger problem, I think, than even the cost is the, is the problem that the, what if it doesn't work? Well, that's what happened with Saddam Hussein. The, the no-fly zone uh, wasn't very successful, and the accompanying uh, sanctions started to unravel. So then there's pressure, well, that didn't work, and we've demonized this guy, that we, so that means we can't negotiate with him, which we've already done with Gaddafi starting back in the Reagan administration. Then there's pressure, well, certainly can't you can't uh, negotiate with this tyrant. You have to take him out. Well, the no-fly zone didn't work, so now what do we do? Well, of course, we have to escalate. And so, we're, you know, even if it just remains a no-fly zone, as you point out, it could be years and years and years as it was in um, Iraq. 
but even even that may not be the tip of the iceberg if they if they uh, have to do more to get rid of them. Right, right. I thought that you made some excellent points uh, about uh, the the unknown consequences of this kind of action. Of course, the view from the Muslim world, particularly the radical elements, is going to be, oh, you know, now it's three. Uh, I think we're beginning to sniff a pattern. And also the degree to which this U.S. actions, or I guess the U.S. and European actions, might lead other resistance areas within the Middle East to believe that if they start something, that the West will jump in, thus further destabilizing the region. Right, and if they, those rebellions can portray themselves as a democratic movement, then there's pressure for the U.S. to do something. And, you know, we don't even really know if this is a democratic movement. They're certainly anti-Qaddafi, but the eastern region of Libya, where most of these people are, had the highest recruiting rates uh, for al-Qaeda in the world, and there's a significant Islamist presence there. So we really don't know uh, who we're helping, and that's very alarming after the episode where we helped Mujahideen against the Soviet Union, and it later came back to bite the United States on 9/11. And I think that you know the same thing could happen. It's crazy to support people that you don't know they might be worse than Gaddafi. At least Gaddafi, Gaddafi had made his peace with the West, had stopped his nuclear program, and was mending relations with the West. But this old demonization during the Reagan administration has come back, and certainly. Qaddafi has a poor human rights record, but it's it's really not much worse than the Saudis or or even the Israelis in the occupied territories, according to Freedom House. So uh, the fact that we're you know sticking up for people who are, who might be uh, killed, I suppose that's that's laudable. But we we haven't done that where many more people have been killed in Rwanda, the Congo, the Sudan, etc. So uh, the reason that we're doing it here, I think, is because Qaddafi has been so demonized, and also there's an oil factor in the background there as well. Yeah, and I think that the any any rebellious forces in the Middle East are going to be pretty wise to the ways of the degree to which magic words like democracy and self-determination are going to trigger a moral response in the West. So even if they have no intentions, those are certainly the words, the magic words that's going to open up the U.S. war chest. Right. And as, as once you start these things going, or if you aid them when they, after, after they start, as in this case, you don't know where it's going to end up. Will it be a liberal democracy? Many of these countries, including Tunisia and Egypt, Yemen, Bahrain, they have only limited, if any, uh, experience with democracy. And some of them, the countries don't have any experience at all. So uh, it takes a political culture it's not impossible for those countries to become democracies, but any country really has to have it bubble up from below rather than uh, being imposed using military power. And it's not clear that these revolutions are democratic. Uh, they seem to be on the surface, but as we saw with the Bolshevik revolution, revolutions can be taken over by a small armed minority that are more radical and more ruthless than other people. So you don't know when a, even even a democratic-appearing revolution will end up that way. So I think we have to be very careful. We've had so many examples of U.S. intervention that have backfired uh, when we uh, overthrew the democratically elected leader in Iran back in 1953 and all the way up to the present, uh, you know, helping bin Laden and that sort of thing uh, accidentally creating a big threat to the U.S. homeland. So I think we need, with all these backfires of intervention, it's really, you have to be very careful. And I think the Iraq War, of course, was a, 
what was a case in point of where we unleashed a can of worms by popping off a dictatorship in a tribal society. And Libya is as much tribal as, the, as Iraq is, and so you don't know whether there's going to be a big... And, well, there already is a civil war, but you may, the, the civil war may be continuous, and it really has nothing to do with Gaddafi as the tribes go after each other, even if Gaddafi is eliminated. Yeah, and I mean, my argument would be that it takes at least a hundred, if not more, years of intellectual development, which culminates in a political movement that a sort of mad corner driven rage against the existing oligarchy is not what creates, at least not what, that's not what happened in the West. Or in the West, from the Reformation onwards, you had a slow and steady progression of philosophical development that culminated in modern Western societies. It wasn't like some space aliens went and blasted off the top of the uh, feudal system and then we magically got democracy. It, it is a much slower and more difficult development, I think. Yeah, so I think you have to have a political culture that bubbles up from the, gradually over time, as you're pointing out, uh, rather than have some, in, uh, uh, you know, uh, just revolution, uh, throw out a dictator. So uh, I don't think we have that in much of the Arab world at this time. That doesn't mean that it can't occur there, but I think uh, we have to be a little skeptical that a lot of these revolutions are going to end up in, you know, uh, like the neocons uh, saying that uh, we're going to change the entire face of the Middle East by reforming and instituting democracy. I just think that's unworkable. Yeah, no, everybody uh, uh, is in such a hurry to free the world that we, I think, end up going around in smaller and smaller circles. Well, it's almost a religious, it's a continuation of the, uh, the U.S. missionary inclination uh, that started really before Woodrow Wilson, but he's really the one that institutionalized it in our, our foreign policy. Instead of uh, spreading Christianity, we have this holy war now to spread democracy, we want everyone to be like us. And, uh, you know, previously it was religion, and now it's the, the uh, political religion of democracy. Uh, and uh, not everyone's ready for it, and not even everyone wants it. And so I think uh, we like to, uh, we say, well, this is, our politicians like to say, well, this is a universal uh, um, set of beliefs, and it's, it's really not. Now, it's, I think it is a great system, but you have to let people come to that on their own, as we've been saying, rather than uh, try to help it along. Because when you try to help it along, I think you sort of uh, discredit it because outside powers are coming in and they're perceived as being uh, imposing it in one way or another. I wonder if you could share any thoughts you have, because one thing I'm quite confused about, I mean, you can look at the naked economic interest and the fact that a lot of U.S. firms have pretty very close ties with the, um, with the Gaddafi regime uh, economically and through oil contracts and so on. But it seems like I don't know what the purpose is of, of this no-fly zone. I mean, he still has such overwhelming ground superiority that I don't know how the no-fly zone is going to fundamentally change anything. Well, I think you're making an error by assuming that it's rational. And, uh, you know, governments don't have, they're, they, they have to do something because the pressure has been brought against them or whatever. Uh, but it's quite interesting that Italy, which is the former colonial power, is less, much less enthusiastic about doing this than France. France seems to want to lead the world and is taking the lead and that sort of thing. And usually they're the fly in the ointment. But Sarkozy's a more aggressive leader. And I think the United States is sort of the one of the reluctant parties on this end. But, uh, but the problem that you have 
is that uh, it makes no sense rationally because the no-fly zone, as you point out, doesn't stop the tanks. Uh, and also, the, what's even more ridiculous about it is the, the, the air crews have been told you only go, you only drop bombs if they're attacking civilians, not if, they're, if Gaddafi's forces are attacking the opposition. And also, it's not uh, the official line is that we're not trying to overthrow him with the military stuff. We would like him out, but we have sanctions and diplomatic means and stuff that we can get rid of him, which is absurd, right? Uh, because if the military uh, uh, doesn't, you know, I mean, the military is a stronger response than a diplomatic or an economic sanctions type of uh, way to get them out. So if you're going to do military uh, strikes, you might as well go all the way. But, of course, that opens another can of worms of occupation and that sort of thing. And after Iraq, of course, the U.S. is very uh, hesitant to do that. So you have this situation where all these countries ha- seem to have to do something about this but nobody really wants to do what would be necessary to actually do something uh, complete about it. They want to just uh, do something that, um, you know, is a half a loaf, it's half-baked. And I don't see any mass slaughter by, by Gaddafi uh, on the order of, you know, Srebrenica or uh, um, some of these other places, uh, Sudan, Darfur, etc. Now, certainly he's killed civilians, uh, but I don't think it's been determined if this is on a mass scale, uh, and it doesn't seem to be on a mass scale uh, like these other places. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, why... I'm wondering the same thing you are. The thing doesn't make any logical sense, but I'm not sure that we can expect a bunch of governments uh, to make logical sense because the policy is being making is being made uh, in all these capitals, and so it, it's what everybody agrees to rather than than what uh, should be done. And of course, uh, Obama has a grander scheme than the UN. He wants uh, Gaddafi to re- withdraw some from some of these uh, cities that the opposition had before, which is of course still only half a loaf, but. It makes no sense to do to to stop there, and so uh, certainly I'm not advocating uh, increasing the war aims because I don't think they should have done this in the first place. But I'm just pointing out that the whole thing seems illogical if you want Gaddafi out, if that's your goal, because the rest of it is just sort of a half a loaf, and Gaddafi could end up uh, even winning with the no-fly zone above him. Or, at minimum, he can certainly just withdraw back into the cities that he has, and the United States and the rest of the coalition is going to find it very difficult to ratchet up attacks when his forces are using the cities, uh, the population in the cities as shields. And so he could exist, uh, you know, he can still rule part of Libya uh, doing that. So even with the no-fly zone above, uh, Saddam Hussein did that in Iraq, and so then he becomes... uh, um, you know, embittered, and he may sponsor terrorism in the West, or certainly uh, pressure will mount to get rid of him, as they as it did with Saddam. So, ten years from now, we may be talking about another ground war in an Arab country. So, uh, this whole once you get the camel's nose under the tent, uh, pretty soon you have the whole camel under the tent, and I think this is the camel's nose under the tent for our future. Uh, intervention, because it doesn't seem like they're going to do it now, but uh, once the West gets involved in this, then we're responsible for any development that happens uh, in Libya. For example, if he did start killing 
his population when the uh, no-fly zone is in effect. It also seems surprising to me, and I confess to having put a close peg on my nose and watched some of the mainstream media reporting of this, there doesn't seem to be any particular consternation over a president waving his hand and launching $100 million worth of missiles into a country that has no strategic or significant economic interests, uh, where the U.S. has no significant strategic interests, which would seem to me to be against the War Powers Act of 73. Of course, he should consult Congress before declaring war, which of course he hasn't done. But there doesn't seem to be any consternation about the lack of procedure in this. It's just like, well, he wakes up, he gets a phone call from Hillary Clinton, he pushes a button, and all the missiles go off. And, you know, the U.S. is supposed to have some vestigial some vestigial checks and balances, and those don't seem to be referenced at all in anybody's reporting of this. Right. And, of course, well, there are a few people on the left, like Dennis Kucinich and on the right, that are saying something about the lack of declaration of war, Ron Paul, etc. But... Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, now, he has followed the letter of the War Powers Resolution so far, but to me, the War Powers Resolution is also unconstitutional because it allows the president to commit forces before the Congress declares war. We are fighting a war. We don't call, we don't call anything a war anymore, but we are fighting a war against Libya right now, and therefore the Congress should have approved it under the U.S. Constitution. But we haven't really done that since 1942. So... Um, it's really, and it's very worrisome because the founders of America founded the country because they didn't like the idea that the English king and other European kings would take their countries to war and all the blood and uh, treasure would be ripped from the people to pay for these wars that were just, you know, over uh, really uh, uh, questionable things. So, of course, America had built on all these checks and balances, which, has, uh, which have eroded over time. And now the president maintains that he can just go to war without consulting Congress at all. And um, that's simply unconstitutional. Whether the courts say it or not, it, it, it contravenes the written constitution uh, under which America is supposed to be uh, uh, you know, operating and uh, under which America was created. I'd like to, just before we end, and thanks so much for your time, uh, I'd like to lead you down the highly dangerous, slippery slope of prognostication. And uh, with, with all the caveats in the world, I mean, I'll, I'll go on record as saying that I, I, I simply can't believe this is going to escalate into anything permanent. The, the U.S. fiscal house is just so shaky that I just can't imagine. Uh, of course, Gaddafi uh, uh, has already begun to offer contracts to uh, China, to, to Russia, and to India uh, in, in return for their op- opposition to this military uh, escalation. I just can't, I can't believe it. I can't believe that it, I never thought they were going to attack Iran. I, I never thought there was going to be another war until there was some change in the fiscal picture for the U.S. But things are so desperate and on the edge as far as U.S. deficits and, def- and, and debt goes. I don't think it's going to escalate much beyond. I think there's going to be a backing down. Uh, but uh, I was wondering if you could just throw a few of your thoughts in, again, with all the caveats that nobody can predict anything, but uh, what, where you think it's going to head. Yes, and I think Qaddafi is a very smooth operator, as you point out, and not only is he trying to buy the other countries in the UN, and particularly the Security Council people, to get on his side, he also realizes that Obama is reluctant to, to do this, and so he realizes that the, you know, we provide all the heavy lifting, uh, you know, the initial strikes, the AWACS, uh, we're going to be in the background even during this uh, no-fly zone when they turn it over to other countries. So, But he realizes that the U.S. is uh, reluctant to do this because of our fiscal situation and because we have two other wars going on. 
And so, therefore, that gives him some cards to play. If he can ride out the, this, he can either uh, finish off the opposition and then just run his country with the no-fly zone above it. What does he care? He doesn't need to put up his Air Force. He's still in power, right? Now, suppose he doesn't rub out the opposition. He can at least retreat back to the cities uh, that he controls and uh, rule quite nicely because they're not going to be, even if they bomb occasionally, uh, he's still in power. So I think he, he, his strategy will be to ride out this uh, initial attack, and the U.S. is trying to get rid of this like a hot potato, but unfortunately its allies I don't think are going to let, let it get off, you know, let them get off. Once they got the U.S. in there, now the U.S. has a stake in this, and everyone's looking to the U.S., but I think what's going to happen is uh, Qaddafi will probably survive, uh, the, and the no-fly zone will still exist, and so we may have a military stalemate uh, in the end, and it will just exist until uh, the West is pressured in the future to uh, alter the stalemate. Uh, certainly, um, you know, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but that would be my prediction, because I don't think the no-fly zone is certainly going to get rid of Gaddafi. And he doesn't seem to be shaking in his boots. His forces are still uh, wailing away on the opposition. So... Um, you know, I think he thinks he can ride it out, and he's probably right. He's a very, he may be kind of nutty, but he's also very shrewd. Well, you don't stay in power for 40-plus years in that region without having a few tricks up your, uh, however, strangely shaped sleeve you're wearing. <laughs> he definitely does seem right, to Right, and he's some... also very ruthless, and of course, uh, that helps him too, because uh, it doesn't help anybody else, of course, but it helps him because he's willing to do what uh, other Arab rulers were unwilling to do, like the Egyptian military. Well, I really, really appreciate your time. It's, it's very timely to get this kind of information out there. I will put a link to your article in the audio and video. And uh, thanks again, Dr. Eland. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye.